Welcome to the Lance Lambert Ministries podcast. For more information on Lance's ministry, visit lancelambert.org. Today we go back to November of 2002, when Lance shared on the Lord being in the whirlwind and the storm. This was a three-part series. For the first part of this series, we'll hear Lance share on how the Lord being in the whirlwind and the storm is seen in the nations. I would like to say how very glad I am to be here. It's very unusual for me to be here in the fellowship um, because I normally come in the summer. And everybody's a bit too busy uh, with the, the conference. So it's a joy to be here. And I would like to turn you uh, to the little book of Nahum. I think you say Nahum. Nahum. And chapter 1. I'm going to read from verse 1. The burden of Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. The Lord is a jealous God and avengeth. The Lord avengeth and is full of wrath. The Lord taketh vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, and great in power, and will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He <clears throat> rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry, and drieth up all the rivers, Bashan languisheth and Carmel, and the flower of Lebanon languisheth. The mountains quake at him, and the hills melt. And the earth is upheaved at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation? And who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken asunder by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that take refuge in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make a full end of her place, and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do ye devise against the Lord? He will make a full end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. For entangled like thorns and drunken as with their drink, they are consumed utterly as dry stubble. There is one gone forth out of thee that deviseth evil against the Lord, that counseleth wickedness. Thus saith the Lord, though they be in full strength and likewise many, even so shall they be cut down 
and he shall pass away. Though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. And now will I break his yoke from off thee, and will burst thy bonds in sunder. We just have a word of prayer. Beloved Lord, we bow here in your presence, and we are glad that you have brought us into your presence. And Lord, we want just to place ourselves under without reservation, unconditionally, at your command. Lord, we thank you that you provide an anointing for the ministry of your word. And into that anointing, grace and power, we stand by faith that you will, Lord, be the grace and power in the speaking and for the hearing, and for the doing. Beloved Lord, we praise you that when a word comes forth from you, it never returns to you void. So now together we commit ourselves to you, that you will take this evening and these times together this weekend, and just, Lord, let it be, a meeting with yourself. And we shall be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. <coughs> this little <coughs> prophecy of Nahum is an extraordinary and remarkable revelation. It is to do with one of the great superpowers of the day in which Nahum lived, the Assyrians, and particularly the city of Nineveh. And uh, it is all the more amazing that something so powerful with such a huge uh, uh, extent, expanse of territory should fall in the way it did. For the ways of the Lord are entirely beyond man. When he uh, sets up a dictator, nobody can remove him. Doesn't matter how many attempts of assassination are made, how many strategies are followed, he cannot remove him till God's time comes. But when God's time comes, he cannot live one single minute longer. There's always been the way, Nero's come and Nero's go, Pharaoh's come and Pharaoh's go, Nebuchadnezzar's come and Nebuchadnezzar's go. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar got saved, that's a real possibility. But they all come and they all go, just as Hitler came and Hitler was gone, and Mussolini came and Mussolini is gone, and Mao Zedong came and Mao Zedong has gone. They are dust. These Human beings that held such power over human beings and brought such suffering and seemed to be invincible, they're all the dust of history. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dust. That is why the Lord said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Not I was. He still is. They are not the dust of history. But they and Moses and David and Isaiah and John the Baptist and the early apostles <coughs> are all involved in a, a purpose, a divine purpose. With their failings, with their weaknesses and even with their sins, somehow or other by the grace of God, they were caught up in something that God was doing in their generation. They are not the dust of history. They are part of a divine destiny. And it is one of the most amazing things in this world that God takes people like you and people like me and he brings us into a relationship to himself and a relationship to his purpose. I cannot remember any time like these past few years where there has been so much conflict and so much problem, so much division, so much uh, what I would call satanic rumors that have split brother from brother, sister from sister. It's not just here or there, but it's everywhere. Nor have I ever known a time when so many of those in the front line of the battle are facing enormous difficulties. Some of them physical difficulties, some of them mental difficulties. We who believe in the power of God, we who believe in the healing power of God. Still, we are today facing enormous things, not with those, I might say, who are worldly and who are compromised, but those who are in the very front line of the battle. Which makes me feel that that which is restrained is being removed. And that somehow or other the enemy is coming in like a flood. It makes me wonder how near we are to the coming of the Lord. I know the believers have always thought that the Lord was coming, even in the first century. Uh, but <clears throat> the fact of the matter is, we have so much more that has been fulfilled in our day and generation. And we are the witnesses of something quite extraordinary that is happening. It doesn't matter whether it is to do with missionary work. It doesn't matter whether it is to do with specific works of God or whether it is to do with those who have seen something of the nature of the church. Everywhere there is enormous conflict. And that's why when I thought about this little time together, I, I had... Uh, a few days ago, no idea what I was to uh, uh, speak about. And I have now learned a little wisdom over the years of my life since I was saved. I was saved when I was just gone 12. And uh, I'm not going to say how old I am, but I, it's a lifetime, really, that... Uh, 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 I can stand tonight a little bit of wisdom is this there's no no point cooking up a message 
It takes us many, many years to come to this simple lesson. When I was first preaching, I used to get migraines. Not whilst I was preaching, nor afterwards, but before. And the reason was that I found out that I got all tense and sort of worried because the Lord didn't seem to give me what I thought he ought to give. Because the Lord is wise. He knew that if he gave me something too early, I'd work on it and end up with far more than I was going to say than what the Lord was going to say. And so the Lord brought what I call a blanket, a fog blanket down. And I learned after many years, the only thing to do is to be still. If necessary, lie down on your back. Sounds lazy, doesn't it? Because if I had fasted and prayed, I always got an, a migraine. As Mr. Sparks once said to me, you're too much in it. When you're resting in the Lord, the Lord can speak to you. But when you get all uptight, you close the very channel for the Lord. And so this time, I went right the way through to a few days ago with absolutely no idea of what I should say. And then suddenly, the Lord said, well, and I thought it was the strangest thing for ages. So when I opened my Bible, I found here in Nahum chapter 1 and verse 3, this incredible statement. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, you may find that very strange that you, you've come all this way to, to take some obscure little statement in the Word of God. And, but, but I think it has a lot to say to our present uh, situation. <clears throat> the Lord's way is normally understood to be in clear shining. Cloudless. Yes. No clouds. Pure. An open heaven. Beautiful days. And thank God there are times when the Lord is working there. But, whenever the Lord's going to do something big, he comes in a whirlwind. And in a storm. A whirlwind can come and go within hours and leave enormous destruction and damage. It is sudden. And it goes as sudden. A storm can come. It can last 24 hours. I have been in storms lasting actually more, 30 hours. I remember one in Jerusalem that began 86 degrees. Suddenly this great bank of blackness came over. I could see it out of our kitchen from the west. And uh, then the thunder started. Then the lightning came. And then cloud bursts. And I uh, had two little Siamese kittens at that time, and I thought they would die of shock because the thunder was like a war going on all around, and the lightning flashed, and then I found them sitting up in the window enjoying every minute of it. <laughs> and then I realized that they were tropical. They were very used to storms. Same with the birds. You know, the parrots and so on. They just loved every minute of it. And... Uh, uh, the interesting thing is this. 32 hours later, 
It went all through the night, all through the day, and 32 hours later, it ended at zero. 32 degrees Fahrenheit, zero Celsius, and six inches of snow. Such a storm. Storms are the incredible. When Nahum was speaking about a storm, he wasn't talking about the kind maybe you have here so much. And his whirlwind is not a tornado, but it is the Middle East version of a tornado. And the storm is the kind of storms we have. Normally only in the winter, often with snow. But uh, uh, what is extraordinary is that you have the whirlwind, the storm, and clouds. Now, that's not what we normally associate with the Lord's work. We don't think of the Lord being uh, working through a whirlwind. Yet it says the Lord has his way in the world. And the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Now, that simply means you can't see him. It must seem that he is a thousand miles away. Yet the clouds that are uh, confusing, uh, they are the dust of his feet. In other words, he's walking. He is doing something. He is progressing. And you cannot always understand it. But he knows what he's doing. And the only way is to walk by faith. Whirlwind, storm, and cloud. I want to consider this in these few times. Tonight I want to consider it in relation to the nation. Tomorrow evening I want to consider it in relation to the church. And the last time I will consider it in relation to the believer. Tonight we will talk about the nations. Uh, the Lord's purpose is fulfilled through the whirlwind and the storm. It has been so from the beginning. Certainly it has been so in this last century. For instance, I personally believe that this last phase of world history commenced with the First World War, 1914 to 1918. In those four years, God came like a whirlwind unto a society that had no idea what was going to happen. The, the Kaiser was actually in a yacht on a Norwegian fjord, holiday. That's how unexpected it was. The British believed that the whole thing would blow over. In fact, it wasn't Satan. God. He locked them in a battle in which 22 million people died. And the whole flower 
of European and British manhood died, and, and of course, later on in that war, America as well. At the end of that war, the whole face of the world was changed. Austro-Hungarian Empire, I don't know if you know, extended over more than half of Europe, disappeared, never to come back again. The German Reich disappeared, never to come back again. I mean the monarchy. Uh, the Russian Tsar disappeared, as far as I can see, never to come back again. And even China, after nearly 2,000 or more years of, imper of dynastic imperialism, finally became a republic. It is quite amazing what happened in that first world war. It was a whirlwind. Was it Satan or was it God? Born in the midst of those four years was something that was going to dominate the whole of the 20th century, Marxism. If there had not been that war, the whole, all the European powers and Britain would have united together to strangle it at first. But they were too, their horns were locked together in battle. And they could not give time to what was happening in Russia. It was At the same time, there was a declaration we call the Balfour Declaration, which was the first time ever anything was said about the possibility of the Jewish people uh, becoming again a state amongst now, I won't spend a lot of time on this. I just want to illustrate that here was a whirlwind and a storm. Was the law in it or not? Twenty years later, there was another world war. In 1939 to 1945. And in that war, what was begun in the First World War was completed. At the end of that war, there was no more the British Empire, there was no more a French Empire, there was no more a Dutch Empire, there was no more a Spanish Empire. A whole lot had disappeared. And Marxism stood at its climax. Both as far as Russia was concerned, and half of Europe was concerned, and as far as China was concerned. It was that war that resulted in the birth of Israel. It is amazing. Was the Lord in this world? When I watch all these demonstrations for peace here, in Europe, elsewhere, I have a most uncomfortable feeling. It's not that I don't want peace. But I have this awful feeling I've seen this before. I remember Neville Chamberlain. I was a little boy, so I didn't understand very much about what he was up to, except I saw him on all the uh, um, papers, with his little bit of white paper in his hand, and peace in our time. And when he was asked about Adolf Hitler, he said, um, 
Uh, he is a gentleman. A man who keeps his word. Hitler wrote in his little journal about Neville Chamberlain that he was a silly old man. What I found so amazing was that all the church leaders in Britain of all the different denominations, including those that were most evangelical, were behind Neville Chamberlain. They called Winston Churchill a drunken warmonger. I found it quite extraordinary that they called Neville Chamberlain a great Christian gentleman and the saviour of Western Christian civilization. I found it strange because he went to Munich and gave Adolf Hitler Czechoslovakia which seemed to me to be a model. In order to save Western civilization, he sacrificed in a totally unprincipled manner a sovereign nation. I believe God saw that. For in one year, this savior of Western civilization this great gentleman who said, Christian gentleman who said that uh, it was peace in our time, the whole world became locked in a war in which 55 million people were to die. Would you not call that a whirlwind? A storm? Suddenly, the drunken warmonger became the saviour of Britain and of Europe. Now called the greatest Englishman that ever lived. I think it's so funny. In a way. Tragic, in a way. But it, I, I have a horrible feeling when I hear all these things being said now that we're seeing a repeat. Well, I only want to say you've got an illustration there of something. A whirlwind, a storm, and a cloud. Cloud. And now what? September the 11th last year, I think, is a milestone in world history. I do not think that those that perpetrated ever thought that an American president would react. They're so used to, uh, the fact of the matter is they believe that the West is emasculated, lost its manhood. That's it, I've heard it again and again and again. They believe they've lost their backbone. They can be pushed around. I don't think they ever thought that a president would stand up and would declare war on terror. Now we have outrage after outrage. Bali with 200 dead. Moscow, the theater, 
with nearly 200 dead. We, of course, have lived with this for years. I always said 70 years, but I heard Mr. Sharon just a few days, well, about now a month ago, and he said 110 years. So we are a little bit immunized to this situation. But I think what is, I think, wonderful is that the American people have woken up. Who's going to pray for something to happen in the United States? For the Church of God to be really built? For there to be an awakening amongst the unsaved? I, I will talk more about the Church tomorrow, but all I want to say is, is this evening is that we, you have here something quite uh, uh, remarkable. Where are we heading? What lies ahead? What does September the 11th really signify? Now, I don't want to bore you to sleep. It's entirely possible, of course. And some people love sermons because it enables them to sleep. And I always say people sometimes take my tapes and they write me letters and say, I fell asleep listening to you, which I always say is a much better thing than a sleeping pill. Anyway, I don't want to bore you, but... Is this present situation we're in in this last year a one-off thing? In other words, it's a conflict that is just one of uh, many conflicts that the uh, nations have passed through. It will pass away. It has no more significance than there are a bunch of uh, 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 sort of uh, angry people doing savage things. It will pass. Or... Is there, in fact, um, is this the beginning of a holy war? Is it, in fact, the prelude to a much greater conflict? Is it possibly the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39? We cannot, with dogma, uh, say it was that, but we should be, as people of God, very alive to the possibilities at this present time. We should not panic and we should not get in some way or another um, shocked by what will happen. We need to have an understanding of the times in which we live so that we can pray with spiritual intelligence and power so that we can stand as witnesses to our fellow citizens uh, in our different countries, we're able to be a witness to the fact that this book has so much within it about our present situation. And that if people do not come to the Lord, that there is no hope. For them, as well as for their nations. What will a war with Iraq unleash? 
Don't think for a single moment that a war on Iraq will not unleash an enormous conflict. Because once the United States, or the United States and Britain in union, or even a number of other Western nations join uh, in an attack on uh, Iraq, nearly every Muslim in the Arab world will unite to fight. Even though many know that Saddam Hussein is a dreadful man. They know very well that he butchered his own sons-in-law. And that there are many others of him. And that he does have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, it's a known fact. The, um, I, I'm not, I won't go into all of that. But all I want to say is this. What will it undo? Are we ready for it? Do we have roots that go deep enough? Or can we withstand the shock? Or do we expect to be raptured before? It would be lovely to think we would be raptured before. But I seriously suspect that we will not be raptured before this particular conflict is over. So now, I don't want to, again, depress you, let alone send you to sleep. But let me say this. President Bush withdraws from the, from the stand that he has taken on this matter. There will be a greater disaster that will, will, will bring us all into an enormously different kind of conflict. Islam is a very strong, masculine type of religion. It believes in domination. It always pushes and pushes and pushes to see if people will withdraw, withdraw, withdraw and withdraw. And once they withdraw, far from being sweet and kind, they become more demanding. Now, that leads me to say something about this. And I, I realize we have to be very, very careful uh, because this is a, is a spiritual principalities and powers involved in this thing. But if you will bear with me, let me say something about Islam. Islam's goal is world domination. It's always been there. If you've ever read the Quran, you know that. It believes that it is predestined to take the whole world, including the United States and Britain and Europe. Now, this is not so stupid as you would think. There are seven million American Muslims. And it is estimated that by the year 2004, that number will go to nearly 15 million, by 2010 to 20 million, because of the black converts to Islam. Nor is it so stupid when it comes to Europe. Britain has nearly 2 million uh, Muslim citizens. Germany has 4 million German Muslims. 
citizens of Turkish origin, mostly. Holland has 800,000. One-fifth of Paris is Muslim. There are more mosques in the south of France than there are churches and chapels. It's not so stupid. Well, you say, are you, are you, are you poisoning us? Because uh, CNN and uh, the BBC, they all tell us that Islam is non-violent, that it is peace-loving, that uh, Bin Laden is an aberration. Not, this isn't real Islam. I think they, in seeking to uh, protect the Muslim minorities, which is right, from savage reaction on the part of other citizens in our different countries, are doing a great disservice. Uh, in if you take uh, the word Islam, it just means submission. A Muslim is someone who is submitted. And um, uh, uh, Islam teaches at least someone like Ahmad Gidat, who was called the, great, the, uh, the Muslim equivalent of Billy Graham. He always boasted that he'd led more white people to become Muslims than any other Muslim cleric in Muslim hi Islamic history. Uh, he said, and of course it's a fact, that Islam uh, uh, teaches there are three testaments. The Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Last Testament. Old Testament, the New Testament, the Last Testament, the Last Testament is the Quran. It teaches that God began his revelation and work with the Jews, chose them. But they were a stiff-necked people, a disobedient people. He gave them revelation after revelation, which was reduced to writing, but they corrupted it. For instance, they said in the Old Testament, that it was Isaac that the Lord told uh, uh, Abraham to offer. It wasn't, it was Ishmael. They said, the Jews said, that the covenant promises was made with the seed of Abraham through Isaac. But they said, that is not true. It was Ishmael. So God was so upset with the Jews that he turned away from them and rejected them. And he chose a new community of people, Christians. And he gave to them revelation after revelation, but they corrupted it. And so finally he turned to a man, uh, a merchant in Medina, called Muhammad. He could neither read nor write. And God, or Allah, as they say, sent the archangel Gabriel to this Muhammad. And he gave him message after message after message that put right all that the Jews had, put, had corrupted and all that the Christians had corrupted. 
And this became the Quran. The most amazing thing about the Quran is it is the most beautiful Arabic. And therefore we have a mystery as to how a man who could neither read nor write somehow produced the most incredibly beautiful Arabic. The interesting thing about the Quran is what it says about a whole lot of things. For instance, what does Islam teach about Jesus? You must know this so that you don't get deceived in any way. Islam teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. That's more than many Christians teach. So-called Christians. It also says that he was born sinless without sin. And that he never sinned at any single point in his 33 years of life. Islam says that he was the Messiah. The Islam not only says that he, the, the affirmation of his Messiahship was his miracles, but the Quran adds at least two miracles that we do not find in the New Testament. One of them being a little stone bird that Jesus was supposed to touch and flew away. When he was a boy. Uh, it's very interesting. Islam teaches that Jesus was rejected by the Jews and that he was crucified. And then it believes that he will return. Muhammad will follow him. But he will return. So many Christians have really taken in when they speak with the Muslim who knows something about the Quran or Song, and they say, oh yes, we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that Jesus is coming there. They say, oh, this is amazing. We've been completely misled on the whole question of Islam. We understood it was something totally foreign, totally contrary uh, to uh, the word of God. Now, you will notice something very interesting. You have the whole gamut of truths. From the birth of Jesus, the sinlessness of Jesus, to the coming again of Jesus. Of, of Jesus. But he did not die. He was crucified, but he did not die. And therefore, since there was no death, there was no resurrection. Now, in other words, the heart of the gospel is torn out. The atoning death of the Lord Jesus, forgiveness of sins, is what the Christians corrupted. And since Jesus didn't rise again, there is no such thing as a new birth. You have all the truth and the heart is torn out. Now, I don't know if you're following what I'm trying to say. I know it's a bit difficult. What is Islam's view of the end time? Now, listen very carefully to this, because now we're coming to September uh, the 11th. What is their end, their view of the end times? They believe that in the last phase of world history, there will be a war that will cover the earth between what they call the house of peace, in which only Muslims are found, and the house of war, in which all Jews, Christians, and heathens 
and that the Muslims, faithful Muslims, devout Muslims, will kill all those Christians, Jews, and heathen who will not convert to Islam. Now, of course, I don't know how CNN or some of the others ever say this is a peace-loving religion. I mean, it's an absolute nonsense, really. That one of the hadiths, which is like a commentary from the very earliest sages um, that were co-workers with Muhammad, says that Muhammad himself was involved in the slaughter of the Quraysh tribe. It was a Jewish tribe. And for 22 hours he decapitated men, women, children and babies. And that he got, as a result of his faithfulness to Allah, he got arthritis in his arm, which he suffered with for the rest of his life. So when people say, but Christianity is violent, and today they say, and so is Judaism, to look at Israel. The interesting thing is this, that Jesus never slaughtered anyone. Nor did Paul, nor did the other apostles. It is absolutely true the Crusaders did, in the name of Jesus. And also the Catholic Church did, in the name of Jesus, in the Inquisition. And so did the Russian Orthodox Church in the pogroms. That is absolutely true. But it is not true that original Christianity, for want of a better term, uh, was spread by the sword. It is absolutely true that in Norway, for instance, uh, St. Olivus, if you know him today, uh, went to all the Vikings with uh, a sword in one hand and water in the other and offered them either life or death. The water being for christening. It was a very successful form of evangelism. Anyone who didn't accept it was, of course, um, uh, decapitated, killed. Uh, um, but what I am saying in this matter is very simple, because it means that uh, Islam began in violence. It was spread to violence. The whole of North Africa. Most people do not know that Egypt was the great center of Christian education in the known world at that time. It was totally destroyed as was Tunisia, as we know it today, which was the other great center of Christian evangelism, Carthage. Totally destroyed. People were given the choice of life or death. Either you become a Muslim and you live, or you die. So many of the Copts died in faithfulness to the Lord. Others converted, and it's now some 1,300 1, years ago that 
quite a few Muslim Egyptians actually had Christian forebears. I, I want only to get over to you that you have here something quite amazing. You have a, 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 a prediction that is not just a small thing in the Quran. It is two or three times stated that there will in the last days be an enormous battle between Islam and the rest of the world. That Allah has willed that Islam will win. And when it ends, there will only be Muslims. Now, if you're still alive and listening, uh, the, the point is you have one great name in the last century. His, his name is Khomeini. The Ayatollah, which means Oracle of God. Khomeini. He was a remarkable man. He was the first one to interpret present events in, in an Islamic way. He said that the world has passed into the last phase of world history. And that therefore we have to expect enormous conflict. That this great war that the Quran talks about will soon be upon us, he said. This is why the Shah exiled them. Uh, Khomeini, if you, you hear me, is, um, said this, why is there an Israel? He said, Allah has willed Israel to be. And used Satan to produce it. Therefore he called Israel the little Satan. And he called the United States the great Satan. This teaching permeated through the whole Islamic world. He said, God has judged, Allah, he said, has judged the lukewarmness of the Muslim masses by allowing Satan to produce Israel. But he said, when the Islamic masses are challenged by the presence of Israel. They will devote themselves to Allah and Allah will empower them, energize them to come against Israel, liberate Jerusalem and liquidate the Jewish people and then they will go on to take the world. Now, I won't say anything more about the Ayatollah Khomeini, except this. Osama bin Laden is not a Shia Muslim. He's a Sunni Muslim. But he was enormously influenced by the Ayatollah Khomeini. He believed that what, uh, what Khomeini said was true. That Israel has to be destroyed. And then the United States must be destroyed. The interesting thing in this whole situation 
is that Osama bin Laden began to do something. He was wealthy enough to do it. So he set up the Al-Qaeda network and began this whole thing. Al-Qaeda is operative at this night in 65 different countries. It is far from destroyed. So now you have something quite amazing. Osama bin Laden obviously believes that this war that is uh, predicted in the Quran is upon us. Now what we had to, uh, for my question earlier was, is this the beginning of a holy war? And is it in fact the war that the Muslims believe? Well, if you're still with me, I don't know if my time's gone, but uh, if you're still with me, let me just say one other thing about Islam. Islam has had two wars and lost both of them. And it has won yet to come, which we are told they will win. That's the Quran. What were these two wars? <laughs> the first was the Battle of Tours. In 700, I think I'm right in saying 36. But it's the 8th century of this era. When the Muslim forces came to Tours, 200 miles south of Paris, they were so well equipped and so powerful, such an incredible fighting force, that the whole of Europe, Christian Europe so-called, quaked. But when the battle came, in the most incredible manner, God gave the victory to the Christians. Maybe you've heard of the man, Shafal Mustel. He led the Christian forces and they routed the Muslim forces. And the result was incredible because of the Muslim idea, the Islamic idea that Allah wills everything, good and bad. When they lose a battle, they are completely disorientated. They don't know what to do. Because why has Allah done this? Why, why has he willed this? What have we done? Why did we not get the victory? They withdrew completely to Spain, where they stayed for another 200 years. And finally, they collapsed in Spain in total racial, if you understand the word, uh, racial depression went back to North Africa and there licked their wounds for the next few hundred years. Now, if they had won the Battle of Tours, do you, as you know, most people are so bored with history. Partly because they had the most boring history teachers. And uh, so they have a kind of thing that nearly makes them nauseous every time they hear history. But think for the moment, do you realize what would have happened if, if the Muslims had won that battle, the whole of France would have become Muslim. Not one-fifth of Paris, but the whole. The whole of Germany would have become Muslim. I mean, there wouldn't have been a Martin Luther. 
It would have been a question of time before they got to Italy and strangled the Vatican. Some might have thought that a good thing, but I'm just saying that they would have got there and finally strangled the Vatican. It would have been a question of time, only a little time, and they would have crossed the channel and taken the United Kingdom, Britain. Then, listen carefully to me, it wouldn't have been Baptists and Presbyterians and non-conformists who would have been pushed out of Britain by persecution and come over here and founded um, the so-called colonies. I don't want to use too many of these words, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, it would have been Shia Muslims fleeing from Sunni Muslims, which means the whole of the United States and Canada would have been Islamic. People don't understand the lessons of history. Mark Twain said, we learn from history that we never learn from history. So it's very, very simple. In other words, they came right near to what would have been the Islamization of the world. And they failed. Believe it or believe it not, it was many hundreds of years later that the second great battle came. It's called the Battle of Vienna in 1683. And under the Ottomans, Islamic forces swept to Italy, took the whole of Greece, uh, took uh, Turkey, it already had become much of it uh, Islamic anyway, but they took the great cathedral of St. Sophia and turned it into a great mosque. They went to Bulgaria, through Romania, through Hungary, through Yugoslavia, Bosnia, Kosovo, and you know the whole battle. Um, and then they came to the gates of Vienna. Everyone believed they should have won. But the Christians' armies were divided, fragmented. But God, in mercy, gave them the victory in the Battle of Vienna. And the Ottomans, the Muslims, were withdrew, and they slowly deteriorated, stagnated. In luxury and license, the Ottomans, they were called sick men of Europe. That's the term that was used uh, over a hundred years ago for them. until they discovered oil. Which was the most amazing fulfillment of God's prophecy concerning Ishmael. That he would become great and powerful, wealthy. It's amazing that nearly all the oil in the world, except here in the United States, is in Muslim hands. And with that oil came untold riches at the beginning of a revival in Islam. Now Islam is coming to its climax and nothing can stop it. Because there is something appointed in this by God. Um, now I hope that I, 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 I've managed to say now, are, where are we now? Islam has brought, Khomeini has brought Bin Laden, some of Bin Laden believes that 
Islam is poised now to destroy Israel. And once Israel is destroyed, it will go to the whole Islamic world like a, like a, 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 a power that will cause them to unite and take the world, the rest of the world. So now I come to the end of this. We should not be afraid. God is in this world. He's in this storm. His way is here. He is going to use this very thing to fulfill his own purpose. I know you may sound very wrong to put it like this, but I personally believe it. That God is hastening the coming of the Antichrist and the world government in order to get it over with. You know, it says in the scripture that he will shorten the day. For the elect's sake. I believe that the Lord is in this world. And thank God he's woken up the American people. By and large. There's a whole different atmosphere. In the United States over this thing. Oh, there are a lot of weaknesses. And all the rest of it. But at least a large number. A majority of Americans. I think now. Are alive and awake to the fact. That something is happening. Uh, uh, that they had, had, had not seen, had not understood. We should not be afraid. We know the one who has all authority and power in heaven and on earth in his hands. It's no good getting neurotic. Christians are generally speaking pretty neurotic already. Um, and it's a shame to get a neurosis as a result of this. The fact of the matter is, it's going to test whether we have living faith. Otherwise, we're going to be nervous wrecks. Now, unfortunately, you here in this great continent have not suffered uh, terrorist bombs and terrorist uh, outrages, uh, uh, basically, until this thing. There have been a few things before that. But what happened on September the 11th was a wake-up call to the whole of the American and Canadian people. If people thought that they were escaping problems by coming here, there's no such thing. Now the whole world is unsafe. So you can choose which unsafe area you wish. I mean, the fact of the matter is that we are now in a conflict that is only just beginning. And if President Bush takes this thing through and is strong and powerful, it will be a message given that will be understood by the Islamic world. But if he withdraws, Islam will believe it's on a winning ticket and will take more and more and more. So, my dear brothers and sisters, the Lord does have his way in the world. And in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. In the prophecy in Zechariah, chapter 12 to 14, we are told there will be many wars, with Jerusalem as the focal point. 
Not one war, but a whole number. We have witnessed already, without calling the Intapata a, a war, uh, six wars in 54 years. Uh, generally speaking in Israel, this last two years is considered a war. And uh, that means seven wars. Every one of them has the, the status and future of Jerusalem at its base. Its base. We have to be sorry for the Palestinians and for all that they've suffered. I mean, they have suffered. And uh, they haven't helped themselves. I might say, in some cases, uh, because they have become so uh, part of this whole terrorist structure. Not all, not by any means all. I have many Palestinian friends. But the fact of the matter is that we have a terrible situation where there, it's a no-win situation in one, from one point of view. Because Israel cannot take the kind of action that America took when she bombed Afghanistan into dust. Then the whole United Nations would go berserk. I mean, it's very funny in one way. I mean, America drops bombs on a, on a wedding uh, in uh, Afghanistan and then in, very, in a very embarrassed way had to say, well, that, no, look, we don't believe it happened. We don't believe it happened. Then they said, well, it did happen. And uh, they said, yes, 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 we're investigating. Uh, same thing happens with us. Only we are not allowed to get off the hook like that. You know, I mean, we have uh, very real problems uh, every time. War is a terrible thing. And uh, it, there's, there's no justice in war. But sometimes the only way to peace is through war. So, dear folks, I believe that the Lord is in this whirlwind and in this storm, and He's going to pursue the whole thing until He has fulfilled in every single part His purpose. I said that it will bring the Antichrist. I have no doubt about it. No doubt about it at all. Can you believe it, how we're losing our personal rights? Any of you who flow them in the United States will know exactly what I'm talking about. Shoved around, have your shoes taken off, things stuck up between your legs. I mean, uh, I, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite abominable, really, but we lost they lost our luggage. Not we didn't lose our luggage. They lost our luggage. Now we find, we're not supposed to know this, but now we find through sources that our bags were deliberately held back along with the majority of others that came from Athens via Frankfurt for security reasons. They opened our cases without our permission, got into our cases, and changed everything around. So we knew very well some had been in a and then had the cheat to phone us and ask us if we could tell them two items in our cases. 
In other words, we had to give them permission to open our place, but they'd already done it. Phones can be tapped. As a result of this terrorism's war on terror, a whole lot of things have to be sacrificed in the interests of safety and security, which is totally understandable. But do you see what I mean by by this being a preparation for the um, uh, coming of a world government. Very, very interesting. Especially now when they begin to ask you for bits of paper and so on. It won't be long before we get the mark here and on the hand so that we can be identified as those who are not terrorists. It's interesting, isn't it? Also, I think this what the Lord is in this ways in this whirlwind to bring Israel to salvation. I do not believe that they will be saved at the coming of the Lord. I believe they will be saved before the coming. And the reason I say this is because the Lord has never saved anyone but sight. He saves by faith. And so in, I believe that there will come a day when the Spirit of God will be poured out upon the Jewish people. And in that time, they will look unto him. That's how the Hebrew is. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, it is nearly always translated toward or unto, not on. But uh, it has been understood to be on. Uh, I can give you many examples of this all through the Psalms and elsewhere where we speak of my eyes are toward the Lord. My heart is toward the Lord. Same word. And uh, then you have it in Zechariah 12. They shall look unto me. To look unto and look on are two different things. When you look on the President of the United States, it means you see him physically. When you look to him, it means you recognize who he is, his authority, and his character. So, I believe we have tremendous things here. Uh, don't be afraid. I will finish by reading just two scriptures. You can think about it and reflect on it. One is in Isaiah, and it is, um, I think you say Isaiah. And um, um, it is um, from verse 8. I just read it. I'm not going to make any comment on other than just one point. Remember this and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now listen to this. Calling a ravenous bird from the east. And a man of thy counsel from a far country. Yea, I've spoken. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will also do it. Now, would you have thought that the Lord's purpose could ever be fulfilled by bringing a ravenous vulture from the east? A 46. Isaiah 46. Perfect. Sorry. 
I didn't make it clear. Would you ever have thought that that? Could the Lord be in such a thing as bringing a, a bird like this is as a, a symbol of the dark powers? Powers of darkness. That's very interesting, isn't it? It was a reference, of course, to Babylon. The man of counsel was Sardis. So you have two incredible things that the Lord says. I will use Babylon with all its wickedness and cruelty and savagery to fulfill my purpose. And I will use Sardis or Persia to fulfill my purpose. The other scripture, I only mention it, it's in Matthew 24 and verse 8 and it speaks of this is the beginning of travel. This is the beginning of travel. Jesus describing the whole phase of world history leading up to his coming again says, this is the beginning of uh, uh, travel. Uh, it's, in some modern versions, it is translated like this, this. These are the birth pangs. What of? Not of Antichrist, the birth pangs of the coming kingdom. Well, those of you ladies who've had children, you know the first pains begin very quietly. And you have quite a little distance from another. And then the distance and another. It's amazing how I know these things. That's <laughs> from my mother. And then they come quicker and quicker and more powerful and more powerful exactly where we are. Start putting it in another way. The Lord is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds and the dust of his feet. Birth bang. I had a very large head and my mother took all of 20 hours to get me into this world. And when I finally came into it, she told the nurse that I wasn't her son. <laughs> because I, my eyes wouldn't open. They didn't open for a whole week. And she was sure I had no eyes. She thought he has no eyes behind those lids. My mother was a quite extraordinary lady. And uh, she went out to have a, a little meal, a celebration. Because I was taking such a long time coming. And then all of a sudden it began. Unfortunately, I was born in the greatest blizzard for a hundred years in which 22 people died. And so, of course, the car was caught up and mother was, that's where I learned all about the earth pangs and uh, how they came more and more quickly and everything else. But the end was a birth. Finally, mother accepted me. I wasn't, apparently, she said, muddled with somebody else, but I was her own son. Because my grandmother, God bless her, said to mother, don't worry, he may look ugly now, but maybe he'll get better. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Birth pangs. They are not a joyride. 
those pangs are something that are painful. Who wants to endure them? But the end is birth. And the Lord Jesus said all these things, wars and rumors of wars and nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom and plagues and, and uh, famines and earthquakes and all the rest of it. These are the birth pangs of the coming. May the Lord bless us and help us. So we pray. Dear Lord, we do pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to be able to have an understanding of the times in which we live. We don't know, Lord, how long we have before you take us to be with yourself, but we want to be faithful, and we want to be those who are uh, 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 witnesses to your grace and to your power. Lord, uh, we pray that you will challenge us this night and make what is happening here in this great land and indeed throughout the, the whole of the world. Help us to understand, God, your purpose in it all. And help us to walk through it, last it, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We hope that this message will encourage you in our current whirlwind. Stay tuned for part two of this message, where Lance talks about the Lord being in the whirlwind and the storm as seen in the church. May you know the deep, deep love of Jesus.